Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. 2022 is a big election year in Connecticut and nationwide. Are you interested in serving the public? There are statewide offices to consider, like Secretary of the State and Comptroller and General Assembly seats. Besides campaign fundraising, what are the challenges that keep people from running? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. This week, our nation remembered the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Some may wonder if the current climate in our nation is worth getting involved in politics. Coming up, we talk with Patty Russo, director of the Campaign School at Yale, about its efforts to attract and train women to run for office. First, there was a lot happening at the end of the year, including the swearing-in of a new state legislator representing West Haven. Today, where we live, State Representative Trinae McGee joins us to talk about her new position. She won in a special election, an election prompted after a city scandal. The lawmaker who previously held the West Haven seat resigned after being arrested on federal fraud charges. Now, do you live in West Haven? Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Representative Trinae McGee, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So a uh, somewhat unconventional campaign season for you. Yeah. Tell us about, yeah. um, you know, how you uh, were encouraged to uh, take this seat after uh, the former representative, Michael DeMassa, resigned in, in the wake of this scandal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, obviously, everyone knows what transpired with um, former Representative Michael DeMassa, and that was a very um, sad situation. In the beginning, I was I was angry, um, but having had known him for some time, um, it, it kind of actually felt like, you know, a grieving process, to be honest, in all humanism. And so um, I when the position was open, when the seat was open, I, I decided to just go for it. Um, I have a passion to serve my community. I love West Haven. Um, you know, I really want to build transparency. And so it, it happened very quickly, very, very quickly. Um, he resigned, I think on like a Monday, the habeas corpus was declared on like a Tuesday. And I think I put my name in, I, I put my name out there and then called around and said, I think I, I want to go for this on like a Wednesday. Um, and the the election was the, the time that I had to um, canvass and campaign for the election was like less than a month, actually. Um, so that's how quickly it happened. And that's what that process sort of looked like. But my campaign kickoff was November 20th. The election was December 14th. I was sworn in December 22nd. Wow. And for those uh, listeners who are unfamiliar with West Haven, you were uh, you're not new to politics. You were a council member for uh, at least uh, one term. That's right. I was elected to the city council um, back in 2019. Um, I was 
on the DTC prior to the city council. Um, and even prior to that, I volunteered at polls. I, I started volunteering when I was 16. Um, you know, before I became an unofficial checker, I was just at the polls helping and then um, would volunteer for every election, specifically the presidential ones, and then joined the DTC in the beginning of 2019. Um, that's where I became politically involved. Um, and then it completed one on the council and now state representative. I definitely want to hear more about what it was like uh, to you know, have that flurry of campaigning before the special election. But you said something about how you know, it was a grieving process. Uh, just to recap, uh, again, many listeners know that uh, this former representative, Michael DeMassa, resigned after being arrested on federal charges, alleging he and another city employee were involved in a scheme to take uh, more than $636,000 in federal COVID relief money that had been allocated to the city. And so as a West Haven resident, as someone who was on the council, talk through you know the reaction in that community because this is a representative that had been in an office for some time. Exactly, um, and not only had he been in office for some time, but he worked for the city for um, years prior to the current administration. I think it was about over a decade. Um, people had known him from canvassing. At Fifteen years old, he would canvass with. Um, elected officials. So he was someone that was loved by the community. Um, and, and just an example of how I, the relationship I had with um, Michael, I would be able to call him up and ask him a question like, hey, you know, Michael, I have this question, you know, can, can you help me with this? And he would give me an unbiased answer. He would tell me the truth. Um, and so it was, it was disheartening. Um, I found out via email, I think just like the, the, the council, um, you know, from a, a reporter who had discovered some information and had questions. And, you know, obviously I knew nothing about it, so I couldn't really talk about it at that time. Um, and I mean, when it hit the news and when the residents found out, they were hurt. Um, they need, Obviously, we were in such a vulnerable position. We still are. Um, and people just didn't understand how something like that could have happened. And from someone who they believed really cared for the community, and so residents were there. There was, you know, mixed response, anger. People were disappointed because they had known him. People oftentimes talked about their experiences with him. And, um, you know, I myself, while maintaining my position of, of leadership and being for District 7 at the time, um, tried to really maintain that balance of being honest with constituents and, and, and talking them through it and processing it with them, but also I was frustrated and I was hurt um, and I was upset about it as well. And it's still something I think we're, we're, we're recovering from. Um, but I'm glad to be in this position because I'm glad to be a part of what's going to move West Haven forward. That whole scandal also points to, you know, the the impact on public trust, uh, community members uh, that want to trust and believe in their elected officials. Did you encounter any of that sentiment when you were campaigning uh, for this uh, state seat, uh, Representative McGee? Yes, um, I think what made it a bit easy is I know many of the community members, um, the high schoolers from protests, um, community members from just talking and connecting with them. Sometimes I'll just pop up at their doors just to see how they're doing. So they knew me and that's what made it easier. But absolutely, um, people just are disappointed right now with politics, period, um, on both sides, on every side of this. And so I heard, you know, mixed reviews. Um, people really didn't understand, like I said, how something like this happened. Um, and, and not only look, but people are just frustrated. 
I think federally, um, state-wise, they're, they're frustrated. Um, and we've gone through COVID. And so obviously, you know, like you sometimes going to doors or just in general, the, the, the common um, theme is you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics. And so um, to have to combat that um, while also canvassing and, and just introducing myself to people who I didn't know and just, you know, talking through, like I said, this entire situation with them was very difficult. And some constituents wanted to know if we were going to get the money back. Um, some wanted to know um, what procedures were implemented after to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. Um, and so that was majority, I think, of what people were concerned with uh, on the campaign trail for the special election. Again, you're hearing Representative Trinae McGee, who represents West Haven, sworn in at the end of December to join the Connecticut General Assembly. If you live in West Haven, you can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I hope I don't, you don't mind that I mentioned that you're a millennial in the context of I had spoken to author Charlotte Alter in early 2020. Uh, she wrote the book, <laughs> The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation yeah. of Leaders Will Transform America. And we're talking about millennial lawmakers who are drawn to public office and who are very different from the politicians in past generations. And so what right. motivates you to be in politics? Yeah, so um, I have to go back to the beginning when I wasn't even a thought. Um, my grandmother ran for office back in the 60s, um, and she ran in Bridgeport. Um, had she won, she only lost by 19 votes. She would have been the first um, black alderman and uh, black female alderman, I believe, um, at that time. And so I always say that I feel like I'm the blossoming of her seeds because I really did not think I would be in politics. I went to school for acting. You know, I started acting professionally when I was three. So that's always been who I, I was. But I've always had like a stirring and a passion for people and um, government was always my favorite subjects in school, policy. Um, I loved, I loved debating constitutional law. So those things, like now that I look back over my life, it, it totally makes sense. You know, that saying, say like we make plans and God laughs. Um, and I think that's what my life has been like. And, um, I, I, I feel like there are so many roles that we play, um, especially, of course, I'm 100% inspired by, by the civil rights movement and so many Black leaders that forged ahead for me to be here today. I think there's so many different roles, and one is having a seat at the legislative table and just discussing things and talking about policy and encouraging young people to vote. Um, and no, I, I, I love to be called a millennial because I think that we are a mixture of um, the radical um, fight before us and also the creative um, um the creative, uh, inventive, um, new idea that I think is so important and needed in every single arena and especially in politics. And so that's what sort of drove me to 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 want to be involved. And, and I'm stepping into a place of the unknown, to be honest, but I think in order for me to be where I want to be, and that is, you know, where I am for those that I believe I can advocate for, I have to be in a position of being uncomfortable. Um, and you know, that's what it's been like so far a little, a little bit. Um, but, but that's what drove me to want to get politically involved. What has made you uncomfortable, Representative McGee? Was it the campaigning? Was it the way the media has written about you, um, and your beliefs? I'm just curious if you could talk more about that. Yeah. Um, I think 
and initially coming into this, obviously, you know, this is politics, so you have to have tough skin 100%. But um, I, people, I think, were aware of some of the advocacy work I have done, and I stand on a whole life platform, which I always say is consistent life ethic, womb to the tomb. And um, that was that wasn't actually a point that I uh, that I was running on because it wasn't something that constituents were really talking about. Many of my constituents know me, you know, many believe the same thing I do, but it just wasn't something that was important, especially for right now, specifically within my community. Um, and so when that became sort of the the image of who I was entirely, um, it, it was very difficult. It was difficult to um, kind of overcome that and to create the image that I believe is important for me. Um, and, and number one being, you know, if you hear it from me, it's the truth. You know, here's the reality, especially because integrity is so important to me. Um, but yeah, that was who I was, the sort of, you know, anti-abortion Democrat. Um, and that was, I mean, that was the tagline everywhere, everywhere. Um, and it wasn't anything that my constituents really talked to me about. I think maybe a few reached out to me and I had some really good conversations and a few women reached out to me and just wanted to know my thoughts on things. But majority of, of, of my constituents were more, um, invested in and what transpired before and making sure that that wouldn't happen again. I think that's an interesting point that your constituents uh, were not uh, really engaged or um, concerned that you identify as a pro-life Democrat, but this is how you have, uh, the story has been told about you. Do you think that the party, um, especially in a, a place like Connecticut, is um, willing or will embrace you, uh, you know, as a, a social conservative, at least in this one particular issue, Representative McGee? I hope so. Um, throughout the campaign trail, I think, you know, some of my some of my introductions to my colleagues were via articles. So that's that's the honest to, to God truth. And then, you know, a few reached out to me. But I, I hope so, because, um, you know, one in four Democrats do consider themselves pro-life, whole life. Um, and specifically that, that estimates they say to be about 21 plus million. And I think the black community specifically, we're not a monolith, we're a very nuanced community. Um, this is a conversation that I've had with so many black individuals, specifically black women, who have all sorts of beliefs um, regarding this issue. And, and I think specifically because um, a lot of it comes down to specifically for black women, a lack of resource. Um, and so I, I've found myself in a position of listening and taking in, but also enlightening and educating. And that's that's what's essential to me is really providing an educative, um, you know, informative resource for women, young women, um, where they're able to make decisions and choices that are less traumatic, um, that are supported by the community, um, that, you know, that leaves them feeling empowered, really. Um, and and so that in itself, I think, um, with the work that I have done, has been primarily to just meet the need of, of women. Um, and, and people in my community saw that, and I think they know that. And so when, and, and people didn't really address me as like consistent life ethic or whole life or pro-life, it was just solidly anti-abortion. Um, and especially with what's going on right now, that's clickbaitish. Um, but like I said before, uh, constituents didn't even, at one point it was my concern, you know, I thought maybe they're not even reading these things, but they were. 
they were. It just wasn't really important to them right now. And when we talk about uh, you being anti-abortion, it's driven by your belief that inequities are, are limiting um, options, resources for expectant mothers. I can't help but look at this statistic uh, by the American Journal of Public Health. Black people were overrepresented among abortion patients and had the highest abortion rate in the country. But we have to remember the CDC also has another study. Black people are more than three times more likely to die in childbirth uh, than uh, white Americans. And so when we talk about inequities, this is something that, that you are drawn to. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think discussions have been made, obviously, around all these different things. You know, maternal um, death rates and infant mortality is so important to me. And what I what I believe is, you know, abortion really isn't the solution for that. I think addressing inequities and racism in the medical industry um, is what will what will change that because we've seen that even black women who are wealthy um, have experienced all sorts of um, injustices. After having given birth, um, Judge Hatchett's daughter-in-law passed away after having given birth. Uh, Serena Williams talked about her experiences. Um, Allison Felix opened up about her experiences. Um, and so I think it's it's a broad conversation to be had. And, and specifically um, in talking to older women, the, the abortion, I think, not, when women thought about it, they many Black women have said to me, I didn't know until decades later that this is, you know, at 15 weeks, this is what a baby looked like, or this is what the development, looked like no one told us these things. And so um, we felt we were lied to. And I think with us having been Black community specifically already a small, you know, we were the minority to have been, um, which which in reality, if you look at numbers um, in comparison to white women specifically, because they were the majority at one point in time, um, they it, it looked like we were obtaining more because we were the minority. But in actuality, if you really look at the numbers, um, they, they sort of balance out. Uh, but specifically for Black women, 73% per to parent had they had resource. Um, and so it's still a tool of poverty. Several times. Um, and it is like I am pilgriming because in this conversation and even talking to young women, it goes so far beyond a woman's to choose. It's actually create accepts and accept woman that to what she has, but providing resource so she feels like she doesn't lack. Again, you're hearing State Representative Trine McGee here on Where We Live. She's uh, newly sworn in to the Connecticut General Assembly. A lot to talk about. Uh, we want to ask you to also if you'd like to join us. If you're a resident of West Haven, this is your representative, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare.
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. My guest is Representative Trinae McGee, a new state lawmaker. West Haven and the Connecticut General Assembly. She won in a three-way special election in December, prompted by former Representative Michael DeMassa's resignation after being arrested on federal fraud charges. Now, I mentioned earlier that Representative McGee is a millennial lawmaker. She was formerly a West Haven City Council member. If you have a question for her, you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Representative McGee, I hope you can hear us. We switched to phones so our listeners can get a better connection. Are you there? (laughs) Yes. So we spent a lot of time uh, hearing uh, your thoughts on and explaining uh, your pro-life stance. But I am curious to hear more about, um, you know, some of your goals uh, as the now the West Haven state representative in the General Assembly when you're talking with constituents, uh, the issues and the problems they want you to address. Yes. Um, So the number one thing has been transparency. Um, and I'm <laughs> made clear to people, listen, I'm not stealing your money, so we won't have to worry about that. Um, but they've, they've, that's all they want. And, and there's a sense of, of hope. People have hope. People want it to be encouraged. They want it to be able to say, we want to be able to call you and, and, and hear and, and talk to you. And that's been an experience that I think many people haven't had previously. Um, a lot of people felt like it's still spe- specifically when it comes to politics that is it's exclusive. Um, and so that's been the number one thing is transparency. Um, also engaging the youth and encouraging them to vote, um, which I, the committees that I'm currently on are education. So I'm really excited about that as someone who had worked at a, as a theater teacher through a theater in the school system. Um, I feel like I have an inside glimpse on what that's like working with high schoolers um, and even college students. Uh, and then secondly, there are, of course, there are questions regarding taxes, you know, that, that comes up all the time. Um, but I think more than anything, it, it is uh, making sure that I advocate for resources and encourage West Haven um, to, um, to, to, to give those resources, resources to those who need them. Um, and especially because during this time, like people, they weren't working. Um, they needed food. Um, people were being ev- evicted. And so those were the stories that I was hearing when I was canvassing. Um, you know, my job wasn't considered essential. I couldn't provide for my kids. My children were sharing one iPad. So those were the things that came up. Um, you know, that money could have been used for that. Um, and so that's that's a main concern. And I think specifically within the, the current local level administration, one of the main things that 
was discussed is how can we prevent this and then make sure that with the more funds coming into the city, um, that they're being allocated in a way that's productive. You mentioned education. We know in this pandemic, uh, the impact on uh, children who weren't in school, but also now fears that with this Omicron surge, uh, the fact that, you know, teachers and other school staff are burnt out, uh, parents don't want to um, see their children get exposed, but at the same time, they know the value of them, you know, being in person. And so can you talk about that and, you know, how you plan to approach that as a, now a state lawmaker? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think during the pandemic, teachers were just as much frontliners as anyone else. Um, I saw, I, I will never forget uh, the, the image of an older teacher and his daughter said, please, students, be gracious to your teachers. My dad is an older guy and he's so nervous to teach you all today, but he's been practicing his technological <laughs> advancement for two hours. He's been working on Zoom for two hours because he just wants to make his students happy. And so I think that was a testament of the hard work that teachers put in throughout the pandemic. Um, and not only teachers, but there's a, a shortage as well with bus drivers. Um, I, I am going to tell you directly from what I've seen pe uh, people, parents say on Facebook and people who've called, um, parents are concerned with um, the hybrid model and whether or not if that ends up happening, um, if they will be fully supported in that process because some parents felt like they were homeschooling their children, that they weren't given the resources they really needed to homeschool their children. Um, another thing that I've seen in, in, on Facebook and parents have talked to me about is um, really uh, needing a line of communication between uh, the school system, so like the Board of Education um, and municipal entities. Uh, a lot of parents kind of felt like they were in the dark. They they believed to make, you know, instant decisions without uh, including them. And it was obviously unfair because parents are the experts of their own children. Um, and one of the things that I think is so important is obviously right now within school systems, um, you know, there's been early dismissals. There's been so much going on. There's been an increase of violence even. Um, and so with the transition back into schools after kids have been in isolation for so long, um, I think one, I think kids need mental health resources. Um, that's, that's essential as well. And, um, you know, if, if they, they, they say like, if you're sick, stay home, but it's obviously it's, it's, it's greater than that. Um, kids go to school and, and, and I've seen kids maintain their masks. Um, kids keep their masks on, but, um, you know, even with the, the kids who are vaccinated or, or kids who are not vaccinated yet, or, um, kids who are unable to be, to be, you know, vaccinated and, uh, teachers, uh, as someone said, my I had a classroom without a teacher for 20 minutes. So, I think we I think this is a time right now to figure out um, the best way to transition kids back into school, um, as well as teachers, and figuring out how we can create a system, even if it's like on an A B system, um, where certain days A this 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 student body does this, certain days this student body does this, so that no child is is suffering. Um, and, and I think primarily just creating conversations between the Board of Education and parents is, is important. When we look at the upcoming session beginning February 9th, uh, do you know yet what committees you'll be on or which ones you'd like to be on, Representative uh, McGee? So I'm currently on um, education, which is, um, um, I believe it's, high school, middle school, and elementary school, and then higher education. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, that's co our colleges and our universities.
So that sounds like you are on your committee assignment uh, is in line with uh, one of your passions, as you just talked about, you know, education, uh, even before uh, your uh, career in, in politics. Yes, absolutely. I was a teaching artist at Long Wharf Theater for um, three seasons, and I worked, we were hired as the theater department and drama class for schools all across the state, um, in the inner city and in the suburbs and private schools and in public schools and charter schools everywhere. Um, it was an incredible experience. And yeah, I, I saw a first glimpse of what it was like to work in the school system and to give kids theater um, and how theater was um, helpful, how it was a tool of empathy, of, of teamwork, of ensemble, of collaboration, um, of uh, creative play. And and um, that was my experience in the school system. So I'm so excited. Uh, I, I love young people. They're incredible. Our protest here in June of 2020 in honor of George Floyd against police brutality was co-organized by a group of high schoolers who were 14 and 15. And they were brilliant. They created a name for themselves so that they didn't have to reveal their identities to the media and so people didn't know who um, Connecticut Against Brutality was until they protested on the green, showed up on the green that day, and they, they were high schoolers. Um, so I'm, I'm excited because young people are the right now. Um, they're intelligent. They're brilliant. They're, um, they, they are the ones that hold the recipes to whatever it is we need, truly. I 100% believe that. It sounds also like you also put a lot of emphasis on the importance of mentorship. And so I'm wondering, you know, who have been your mentors? You mentioned uh, your relatives, but in terms of the Connecticut General Assembly, who has welcomed you and and helped you along the way? Yeah, so um, thanks for asking this, because I think it's mentorship is so important. Um, imparting in the next generation, um, it's it's giving a share of, of everything, your information, your knowledge, um, sometimes you like your millennium might need to sleep on your couch or borrow some money. I don't know, but, um, Senator Winfield, um, has been a great mentor to me. I met Senator Winfield years ago when I was just like on a city council, um, and oh, not to belittle city council work because that's just as important local levels, grassroots. Um, but I would go canvassing with him, um, sort of just like kind of be, I was a shadow for a little bit. Like I would canvass with him. Um, he would be in West Haven. He would talk about his experiences. He was always, like, taking pictures. He saw me do – came to one of my theater workshops before. Um, and this was when I had no idea that I would be in the State Assembly. And and I remember an experience I had with uh, Senator Winfield is we were canvassing on a really dangerous kind of road. And um, just watching him interact with people, um, watching people shut the door. They didn't want to talk and just kind of seeing him say, you know, sometimes how it is, you know, and just kind of moving on to the next person. And um, I also was inspired by his story regarding his grandmother, whose name was Araminta. And that, that's, that was Harriet Tubman's birth name um, and what she meant to him, because my grandmother means a lot to me. Um, State Representative um, Robin Porter as well. I had been on probably three or four panels as a young black elected woman. And it was she who would give my name. Like she would just give my name to people. You know, there's a young woman in Connecticut. If you want a young black elected official on your panel, Trinae McGee. So there were a couple panels I was on um, just because of her. And I was grateful for that. Just a door opener. Um, someone who was like, you know, we have to give this young woman an opportunity because she's, she's the future. Um, and that means a lot to me because 
of course, I believe iron sharpens iron is a friend sharpens a friend, but I also think it is so important that the older generation begets someone to mentor um, because you, you don't want future generations to die of a lack of knowledge or wisdom or insight that you carry. Um, I mean, there's been so many people here on the local level, Commissioner Chris Suggs and Councilwoman Robin Hamilton, Mike Lass. I mean, um, West Haven has been my foundation. They've surrounded me with support. They've encouraged me. My colleagues on the council um, really care about the community. They know what they're doing, um, and I'm inspired by them daily. So they've been incredible mentors to me so far. And what's your take on, on the governor, Representative McGee? I, I I really don't know, to be really honest with you. I have to, I would love to speak to the governor um, and just, just, just to meet him personally. Um, we, I haven't had that chance, that chance yet. Um, and I, and I think that's important. I think it's important to, to learn a person and meet them because I, you know, like here it is. I'm, I'm saying I, w- I would have loved for people to reach out to me before, uh, you know, creating an identity for me for themselves. Um, and so I, I would just, you know, love to talk to the governor more. Um, I, I, I think it's essential right now specifically for there to be more engagement with, um, not only the black community, but young people, the young vote. That's, that's very important. So if that's any, uh, insight that I could give, if the governor's listening, hello, governor, um, let's engage the young people. It's important. I brought up the governor uh, earlier this week. The current reported that uh, State Representative Brandon McGee is actually stepping down. He's going to work for uh, the campaign uh, for the governor. Um, and again, this is another example of a younger lawmaker uh, for the Hartford yeah. and Windsor area. Another special election opening up. And so thinking about the people that are interested in coming up uh, the ranks, uh, Representative McGee. Absolutely. Um, uh, Representative Brandon McGee and myself call each other cousins, um, <laughs> um, but but we're not related. People say, are you related? We say, yeah, we're my cousin, <laughs> you know, we're cousins. Um, yeah, I think he's he's done some great work in Hartford. Um, I mean, people know um, Representative um, B. McGee far and wide. Um, and so it's I think he's done some great work. And it's important to have someone like him because. Um, we we have to be at these tables and in these spaces to give voice to what we believe is important. I remember I sat down with older uh, legislators at one point in time, and I said that with this Gen Z generation, you can no longer say as a woman or as a black person or as a or as a Latin person, you have to vote this way. That that is it times up for that. You have to educate them on um, platform and policy and, uh, and encourage them to make an enlightened vote. Um, because they are the generation, I saw something that said that truth speaks. And so um, I remember going into a space where they were encouraged to vote and they were asking tough questions like, well, why should we vote this way? Because we voted this way for many years and look at our community. Valid, really good, juicy, hard questions. Um, and so having someone like Representative B. McGee in that space, I think, is the it's like a connector. It's the bridge between, you know, that intergenerational conversation that's important in politics right now. It'll be interesting to see uh, who puts uh, their name in the hat for, for that seat uh, now that he's uh, leaving the General Assembly. But it has been a pleasure to speak to you, State Representative Trinae McGee, again, recently sworn in as the new state representative, uh, one of them uh, for West Haven. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've had a great time.
You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, after the break, 2022, a big election year, we talk with the campaign school at Yale about its work to train and prepare women to run for office. You can join us as well. Are you an alum? 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up Monday, in Connecticut, like many states, minors cannot be vaccinated without parental consent. We talk about how this impacts families and teens when they don't share their parents' views on vaccines. Have you had this conversation in your family? Join us Monday. Now, this year, we'll bring another busy election season with the governor race and other statewide seats like Connecticut Secretary of the State and Comptroller, not to mention races in the General Assembly. Now, how has campaigning changed in recent years? Who's being attracted to serve? And what are candidates doing to combat issues of public trust? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now on Zoom is Patty Russo, Executive Director of the Campaign School at Yale. Patty, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Lucy. Great to be back. I understand this is the 27th class that will be starting at the campaign school this summer. You've been a part of this effort from the beginning. So tell us some of your broad observations about campaigning, especially with this pandemic. And now we've got another busy year ahead of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, like the rest of the world, everything shifted for us almost, and I can't believe I'm saying this, Lucy, three years ago, when the, you know, kind of felt like out of nowhere, the pandemic hit. And um, as a result of that, we had to pivot at our school, like everyone else did out there. Um, our our five-day was suddenly canceled. Um, all of the live online trainings, our one-day trainings were canceled. Uh, basically, I was spending a lot of time at home, as I know every your listeners and yourself could totally relate. And then we started, we had an inordinate number of women, uh, our grads, running for office that year. And uh, they started calling us and they're like, Patty, help us. How, how do I run in a pandemic? I can't go door to door. So all the traditional um, things that you do when you're gearing up and getting ready to run um, were just totally unavailable uh, to our to our grads. I can't go door to door. Nobody's opening up their door for me. Um, you know, with, with the fear of the pandemic, all the fear of the unknown, um, women were disproportionately hit in COVID. Uh, they lost their jobs. They were furloughed from their jobs. They lost their childcare. They lost schooling. So suddenly women were faced with, you know, job hunting and um, really homeschooling and running for office. So we quickly pivoted and started offering live online campaign training, initially for our grads who were running. Um, and then we started getting calls from other women who were running saying, hey, you know, a friend of mine from the campaign school just told me about this great training that you're doing. Can, you know, I'm not a grad of the school. Can, 
can I join you? I really need help. And so that's when we opened it up to everybody who found themselves in the unfortunate predicament of running in the pandemic. Who knew how to run in the pandemic? Nobody. And what do you need to know? Um, Patty, what do you need to know to run? What do you need to know to run a campaign? It's pretty intensive. Can you give us some snapshots of of what your uh, participants are learning? Uh, Well, you know, they're learning how to zoom into plan B. I mean, initially, you know, again, um, you can't go door to door. I mean, we were getting out there a little bit more. Now, as you know, we're pretty much in lockdown again. Um, And so how do I utilize other um, social media uh, in order to make connections with potential voters? Uh, Social media became what has been become increasingly important to any campaign. But during during COVID, it became just critical. You know, you needed to learn how to utilize social media to your benefit in order to get your message out. Now, you're a nonpartisan, so give us an idea, you know, some of the, I know obviously Caroline Simmons is now the newly elected Democratic mayor of Stanford. Uh, she's yeah. an alum. Uh, Jennifer Tooker, yeah. Republican first elect woman in Westport, yes. also an alum. What's yeah. driving women to want to run for office when, as you mentioned, in the pandemic, uh, many might be still looking for work, kids are at home, and mm-hmm. now they're going to put this on their plate? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, women love a challenge. What can I tell you? Uh, Women have always gone into the business of politics, and it is indeed a business, um, because they want to make the world a better place. Uh, Usually, uh, you know, when women tell their stories, and Representative McGee is just, McGee is a stellar example of that, I want to make a difference. I love my city or my town or my state, my country. I want to move the needle. I want to make um, I, I want to make a positive impact in the world. And usually, it's about a challenge that has happened um, at home, uh, in their community, in their state, and they think, "Why not me? This may be my time." And so, our school, which will be as as you mentioned, we will be seating our twenty seventh class. Lucy, um, in June. So we have just announced our uh, five-day intensive, which again will be because of the pandemic, live online once again this year, the week of June 6th through the 10th. Um, And if people want more information about our um, application process or have any uh, questions about applying to the school, they can uh, visit our website at tcsel.org. Can we talk about some of the races uh, that we'll see here in Connecticut? A lot of people mm-hmm. interested in the Secretary of State race. Now the mm-hmm. controller seat is open. Mm-hmm. And it was this, mm-hmm. is there still this, um, I guess, this feeling that, you know, you've got to be in politics for a while uh, to run for a, a race like this, Patty? What do you tell candidates mm-hmm. who are interested in these kinds of races, who are new yeah, to politics? Yeah, no, not really. I mean, you know, every race is up, quite frankly. You know, every race is up um, from the governor to controller to secretary of state treasurer they're they're all up so all our constitutionals are up we've got a u.s senate race um here all the congressionals are up every state house state senate is up there's plenty more room in in our state for more women running for office you know we rank i believe something like 19 percent 
which, you know, I remember when we were in the top 10 uh, percent of the number of women serving in our state, plenty of room for more women um, getting their, taking their seat at the table. I think we have nine women in our state Senate right now and 53 out of 151 in the state house. So only 33% of our population are women. And when you talked earlier about uh, running is a business, can you talk more about that Mm -hmm. uh, when we think about some of the the challenges, you know, uh, in being a candidate? Well, I believe that, you know, as you mentioned, um, our school, which was founded in 1994, it was two years after our first year, the woman here in uh, in the United States, 1992. In 1992, Lucy, we saw so many women running for Congress, both on the Democratic and Republican side. And those of us who were politically active, of which I was one, working on a million campaigns, we were so excited at the prospect of what what the climate was gonna look like um, as a result of so many of those women running and winning in 1992. And then in 1993, we didn't see the the numbers. We're like, where are these women? Why were they not inspired to to raise their hand and take a lead and and, uh, take the leap and run for office? And so our founder, uh, Andre Allian Brooks of Westport, got us all together. Um, I was with the Connecticut Permanent Commission on the Status of Women at the time. She brought in Rosa DeLauro and then Congresswoman Nancy Johnson and had a vision, had a very, very big vision. She said, you know, I think that there are challenges that women face that men don't even have to think about. And I think we need a campaign school that will address all the challenges that women face in order to level the playing field. And so that's how we got started. Uh, we are a nonpartisan, issue neutral political campaign training program, not only for women who are interested in running for office, but also for women who are interested in campaign management. How many campaign managers can you name who are female, Lucy? When you think <laughs> about the numbers, you know, we, we, we need, we just need more women everywhere. That's basically our bottom line. You mentioned the climate. I was curious, your observations when we think about uh, this country where we're at right Mm now, uh, just marking the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, the anniversary yesterday, a lot of hostility, a lot of uh, people's trust in elected officials has been eroded. Uh, You know, the the feeling that democracy is fragile. I'm just wondering what your take is on that. And again, what would make someone want to be part of this uh, system um, when there's a lot of negativity attached? Um, it's brutal. It's hard. And, you know, that is something that we, you know, we deal in the realities of politics at our school. We want our grads to be trained and prepared for anything that may come their way. It is a brutal business, Lucy, and it's not for everybody. Um, But everybody does have a responsibility to be civically engaged. And I think if nothing else, that is what has been proven this past year that we have to speak up and we have to take a lead uh, because democracy is fragile and it's too important. And so we try to um, instill upon our grads a sense of responsibility, integrity, collaboration, 
because that's what good leadership is about. You know, I'm old enough to remember when um, we were much more collaborative in our leadership style in, in our country, in our state. Um, my fondest memories when I first uh, landed in Connecticut was working for both um, Chris Dodd, who was running for the United States Senate at the time, and Chris Shays, a Republican, who was running for Congress here in my in my district um, in Fairfield. And I remember when they both won, and I remember heading down to D.C. to meet with Chris Dodd, and there he was in the Senate dining room at a, at a table with his best buddies in the Senate, you know, Bob Dole and John McCain and Joe Biden and Teddy Kennedy. And, you know, just thinking, wow, would we ever see that today? And I think that that's, you know, women as a result of the way in which we decide we're going to be civically engaged, uh, we're much more collaborative in our leadership style. And that's what we need to get back too, is that collaboration. And that's what's so great about the culture and the climate that we foster at our school. It's less about being a Democrat or Republican the week of our school. It's more about how can I better understand your perspective? How can we meet halfway? Because that's what good government is about. Well, Patty, it's been a pleasure to hear from you about the work again that you've been doing for some time at the campaign school at Yale, as you mentioned, the 27th class uh, beginning in June. I can't wait to see uh, what uh, uh, new leaders uh, you help uh, develop, uh, you and your team. We appreciate your time today. Thank you so much, Lucy. That's Patty Russo, Executive Director of the Campaign School at Yale. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our Technical Director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm Lucy Nalbethangel.